In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. You may be seated. Blessed fourth Sunday of Easter to you, also known as Good Shepherd Sunday. And in this week's Gospel, John chapter 10, verses 22 through 30, which take place during the Festival of Dedication, you know that festival as Hanukkah, the Jewish leaders gather around Jesus and say, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus replies, I have told you, and you do not believe. Jesus, in John chapter 10, was hardly being cryptic in his discourse on the shepherd and the sheep. For to call oneself the shepherd, to call oneself the good shepherd within that cultural milieu, especially in the context of a conversation about messiahship, is to call oneself the king, for that is what a messiah is. The messiah is the king of Israel, and not only of Israel, but of the world. In my undergraduate studies many moons ago at this point, I took a course called Old Testament backgrounds, which delved into the world, or more accurately, the worlds in which the Old Testament, the so-called Old Testament, was written. And I say worlds because the Old Testament was written across many thousand, thousands of years and amidst or adjacent to many different cultures. So we're studying uh, the history. We're looking at ancient text and archaeology and my professor's favorite topic, topography. Uh, It was a very good class. Uh, I got a lot lot out of it. I'm still talking about things I learned 20 plus years later, but a lot of the texts that we read were dry, to say the least. We had this one book called Ancient Iraq, and everything about it, the cover, the font, the paper that it was printed on screamed, This is going to be the most boring book that you've ever read in your life. And to add to it, this class was at 8 o'clock in the morning, which let me tell you something, that 8 a.m., that would be like sleeping in now. You know, that would be like sleeping until noon. But 19-year-old Matt and 8 o'clock classes didn't mix. Uh, I was a night owl. Uh, We would stay up late, oftentimes talking about philosophy or theology, but many times playing video games and making jokes and shotgunning Red Bulls or whatever it is. Um, Last Christmas, this is a sidebar, last Christmas uh, we got the girls a Nintendo Switch, which if you don't know, that's a video game system. And sometimes I'll play with them and one of our favorite games to play is Mario Kart, which was an original Mario Kart back in the day. And when I play the girls, I destroy them. I mean, they have absolutely no chance. And they'll ask me, Dad, how did you get so good at Mario Kart? And I've told them, well, I have sacrificed many a letter grade on the altar of Mario Kart back in college. Uh, Yeah, I took a double major, uh, religion and Mario Kart. Uh, But, okay, so I take this class. Half the time, I'm half asleep. But nevertheless, it was impressed upon me, more than anything else, that shepherding is the metaphor for kingship 
in the ancient world. Its usage is everywhere. Across cultures and millennia, kings are referred to as shepherds. Its usage is virtually ubiquitous. So much so that our professor referred to it as a dead metaphor. Now, a dead metaphor is when the original imagery of the metaphor is no longer invoked necessarily. So people would hear shepherd in the context, you know, if the king referred to himself as shepherd, they might not necessarily think of literal shepherds. They would just think of kings. I mean, we have all sorts of things like this in the English language. Each one of us have probably used a number of dead metaphors since we've been awake today. One is the word uh, deadline. Deadline is, I think we could call it, a dead metaphor. Because a deadline, originally the image was a line drawn around a prison beyond which if if prisoners crossed the line, they would be liable to be shot. Now, when you get a deadline at work, that image is probably not invoked in your head. I wouldn't think so. The point is, all that to say, I could have just given you one sentence, shepherding and kingship are linked. That wouldn't have been as much fun. I couldn't talk about Mario Kart if I just told you. Shepherding is a de facto synonym, in a way, for king. And Psalm 23, uh, beautiful job, Eric. I love Eric's uh, rendition of Psalm 23, his arrangement of that. Psalm 23 is a great example of this principle at work. David quickly transitions from pastoral, agrarian images of pastures and still waters and valleys to verse 5. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. So the psalm, at least seemingly to us moderns, goes from being bucolic to being Braveheart-esque. It goes from easy listening to uh, death metal, or so it might seem. Do you guys want another story? Might as well have fun with it. It's, it's not too hot. Do you guys remember the rich... Let's, we're, just, we're going off script today. Do you guys remember the Rich Mullins song, Awesome God? Our God is an awesome God. He reigns. Okay. Raise your hand, because if no one knows this song, the story's not going to work. I actually love that song because it's not talking about God being awesome in sort of the pop culture way, as if, if like Jesus was a surfer, like, God's awesome, bro. It's awesome in the biblical sense of like a holy terror. Like God is so incredible, it just puts us on our face before him. So one time back in the, uh, this would have been the late 90s, I went to go see a hardcore uh, Christian band. This was like really hard rock named P.O.D., which stood for Payable on Death. And this was before they got signed and they were big and on MTV and all that kind of stuff. And I go to see them and this band opens up for them. And, you know, these guys look pretty intimidating and scary this band that opened up for them and so did pod it's like if you saw them in an alley dark alley you might turn around and walk the other way this guy walks up to the mic all kind of soft-spoken and (laughs) he's like you know we just want to give this night to god and he starts singing awesome god he's like our god is an awesome and i'm probably exaggerating how like boy bandish his voice was but he gets to the end of the chorus and he goes our god is an awesome God! 
God! And he screams, and then he's like, Oh, God! He's an awesome God! He reigns! And the bass player is taking his bass, and he's hitting it as hard as he can against the monitor. And I'm on the front row, and I'm just like, I'm like, I don't know what's happening here. So my point is, I mean, this is, this is really sort of a tenuous point, but I'm going to tie it in. Is this what David's doing? So verse 3 and then uh, verses 3 and then 4, it kind of starts to pick up a little bit and build shadow of the valley of death. And then verse 5, he's just full in rocking out. What's going on with this song? Because as you can see, well, see, you'll never, you'll never forget that shepherding equals kingship for the rest of your life. You'll remember that forever when you read scripture. You can see that verse 5 has nothing to do with literal shepherding. It's about kingship, and it's about the practice of kings in the ancient world. You've prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemies. So they, they would win a great battle, and they would have their defeated foes present, at least some rep, the ones that survived, and some representatives, perhaps the other king or leader, present while they would eat the feast. Kind of rubbing it in. It's about kingship. So there is in Psalm 23, obviously, a shift in imagery, but not in theme, not in subject matter. David speaks about kingship the entire psalm. To say the Lord is my shepherd is to say the Lord is my king. In Revelation chapter 7, today's second lesson, and by the way, all the lessons are coming to the party today. In Revelation 7, the second lesson, the Lamb, see how this comes together, the Lamb is the victorious king who has conquered by his blood poured out in death. Verse 17, the Lamb at the center of the throne. The lamb at the center of the throne, regal imagery, will be their shepherd. Jesus is both the good shepherd king and the lamb of God. He is the high king and high priest of heaven. And there is in scripture, all right, one thing I don't want you to forget, shepherding equals kingship. This is the other thing that will help you as we, as we go through the Bible. There is in Scripture an inextricable link between throne and altar. Throne and altar. Think of the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. The Ark of the Covenant is envisaged as God's throne, footstool, dwelling place on earth in the midst of his people, Israel. And it was also the mercy seat, the lid, the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. It was the holiest sacrifice or the holiest altar of sacrifice throne and altar the cross of christ was both a throne which christ ascended in glory having two thieves seated as it were on his right and on his left but it's of it's also of course the altar of the cross it's where the lamb of god was slain once for all for the sins of the world. So the Lamb of God is the conquering King who won for us the victory over sin, death, and Satan. And it is by his sacrifice that we are able to enter into the kingdom of God to share in his life and his benevolent reign. 
to sort of paraphrase N.T. Wright to see the link between throne and altar. The cross, by, by Christ offering himself on the cross and defeating our enemies, that is the way in which God became king on earth as in heaven. John chapter 10. The thief cometh not, this is Satan, but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd throne. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Altar. Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, as he is called in Hebrews 13, 20, became a sheep. That is, he became human and offered himself on the altar of the cross as the perfect lamb of God, whose precious blood taketh away the sins of the world. By his death, he conquered death. And in his resurrection, he inaugurated the age to come, an age where the reign of the king of kings is fully realized, where there is no disparity between the life of heaven and the life of earth, where, verse 17 of Revelation 7, quote, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the ultimate future. But in and through the church and by the power of the Holy Spirit, the reign of the Lamb is a present reality. It's both a now and not yet, but I want to emphasize the former, that this is a present reality. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22 and following. And he, that is the person of the Father, put all, thing, put all things under his, that's the person of the Son, put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Again, that's a present reality. In Acts chapter 9, today's first lesson, I told you all the lessons are coming to the party. When Peter raises Tabitha from the dead, he is implementing and sharing in the reign of Jesus Christ, the one who conquered death. He is acting as an agent of salvation, restoration, and new creation, which is precisely what he is commissioned to be by our Lord. John chapter 20, verse 21. As the Father has sent me, what does he say to the apostles? So I I'm sending you. Well, Father Matt, I'm not an apostle. So we're not apostles. But as Christians, we share in the reign of Christ by grace, by virtue of being in Christ and incorporated into his mystical body by baptism. We reign with Christ. Go see 2 Timothy chapter 2. See Revelation chapter 5. It speaks of the faithful as sharing and reigning with Christ. So our king has commissioned us 
as his ambassadors and given us a ministry of reconciliation and new creation, 2 Corinthians 5. So these are all the riches that we have in Christ by the Spirit. We have the same Holy Spirit indwelling us, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, the same Spirit that gave Peter the power to raise Tabitha from the dead. Even though, strictly speaking, that wasn't a resurrection that she was resurrected into her glorified state in the same way that Jesus was on Easter morning, in the same way that we will be at the end of the age. Uh, but she was raised from the dead back to live in this life. But she died again. When we're raised at the last day, we will never, death will never touch us ever again. That same power lives in us. But if you look at the, the church today, to ask, where is that transformative power? This is what's available to us. Where is it? Are we, are we quenching the spirit of God in our lives? And I think one of the ways that it begins is just for us as Christians, as a church, to actually ask God overtly to transform us in, the, in his grace and in his knowledge. To surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ and to say, Lord, I am yours, period. I want to know you and the power of your resurrection and if need be the fellowship of your sufferings. I did a vestry retreat, not yesterday, but the Saturday uh, before. And they wanted me to talk about discerning uh, the will of God and all these certain things. And they've got a new rector, and it's really sort of like a, a rebirth of this church and a replant. That, that's their words, not mine. And I said to them, you want to grow, but what does that mean? You want a lot of people here? You want to have a huge balance in your bank account? That's all well and good. Every person, every number, that represents a soul for whom Christ died. But the heart of what you want has to be to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. That if you are transformed, this body, this microcosm of leadership in the church, if, if you are radically transformed, then all that other sort of growth will happen. That's what God desires for us. So through union with Christ, an imitation of Christ, the church embodies and implements the reign of the shepherd king, Lamb of God. And our union with him is utterly strengthened by the precious blood of the Lamb, by the blood of the eternal covenant, as Hebrews 13 says. We are transformed into the likeness of Christ and equipped to do his will. And it is in the Holy Eucharist that we receive the precious blood of Christ. It is in the Holy Eucharist that God prepares, for, prepares a table for us and fills our cup to overflowing. But if we want to be transformed, read 1 Corinthians 11. People who receive the Holy Eucharist, they're either 
They receive the Lord, and that's either unto life or that's unto death. We come to receive him in an attitude of repentance and humility and surrender. And then God takes us and he transforms us by the blood of his precious son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the feast prepared for us in the presence of our enemies. Therein we share the feast of victory and we eat in advance the wedding supper of the Lamb at the end of the age when the Lord's will shall be done fully and finally on earth as in heaven. Let us pray. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.